0: Hello, listeners. It's Gerard Robinson coming to you from beautiful Charlottesville, Virginia. We are here for another fabulous conversation with a guest. In fact, a guest who is a little further over the Atlantic than most of our guests. But this is why we have a learning curve so that we can learn from people who work and live on different continents. But of course, I can't have any real conversation with anyone on any continent, except for the person who lives in the Boston area, who is a co-host and doing the fun stuff with me. Hey, Kara, how are you?
1: Well, sometimes it feels like Boston's on another continent to some folks, I think. Oh. <laughs> I'm doing so well, Gerard, because as I just shared with you, Argentina just beat Croatia 3-0, so we're at a good place for the World Cup Finals. Very, very excited about that. And... Just a comment. I know some of our listeners are fans, others are not, but man, nothing like bringing the world together to watch than this beautiful game. So I'm I'm in a very good place right now, Gerard. I hope you are too.
0: For our listeners who may not know why you're in a good place with Argentina, could you fill them in?
1: Yeah, that's, thanks for that. Yes. So I think, as I've mentioned before, my husband grew up in Buenos Aires and I've been spending time with my extended family there for you know over 20 years now and we spend a lot of time there and my children feel very bicultural i would say and yeah they're actually they are having the opportunity right now to be down in argentina experiencing the games watching with family so it's pretty cool and i wish i could be there with them but other circumstances have kept me on the continent of boston so i'm happy to watch it from afar though it's it's just as exciting
0: Great. Well, what uh, article of the week caught your interest?
1: Oh Well, I mean, saying it, it caught my interest is it, it, maybe it caught my ire or just made me laugh a little bit, which is very facetious. But what I'm looking at right now is an article. Well, it's entitled. New Hampshire Department of Education sued over program that sends funds to private schools. So, of course, Gerard, this is about a lawsuit brought by the person who is the president of the American Federation for Teachers New Hampshire. She is actually suing as herself, not on behalf of her union, alleging that. In New Hampshire, what they call education freedom accounts, but what most of us would know as education savings accounts, are illegal because they divert I mean, blah, 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 blah. They divert money from the education trust fund for those who are in public schools, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Is the same old song, it's the same old argument, but the thing that I find so... I know I'm being facetious, Gerard, forgive me. Entertaining about this is that this program has now been up and running for about two years, very successfully. And parents are just, I think they doubled in size in the past year, Education Freedom Accounts. Shout out to my great friend, Kate Baker Demers, who runs the program there. And, you know, Gerard, kidding aside, this kind of article is important because as These programs grow in popularity as they grow in size, as they spread to now, you know, now we've got 10 programs across the country. We've got micro grants as well, which could usefully be expanded into education savings accounts. Of course, micro grants don't allow parents to purchase private school tuition. But what I think this is when we see lawsuits like this number one, it's to be expected in most cases. This one in New Hampshire is coming a little late. The strategy is usually to head these programs off at the pass, or at least try to before parents get a taste of them and really experience what it is to have flexibility and be able to make choices on behalf of their children. But this is to me is an indication that these reforms are not only on the move, but they're gonna continue to be on the move because those who want to take choice away from parents are on the defense and trying to go on the offense. And I think it's just becoming increasingly clear to many that not only are these programs legal, constitutional, as they've been deemed. In a place like New Hampshire, where they're so popular, to try and take choices away from parents once they have them, once they're enjoying them, especially on, I think, what Most are going to look at the grounds of this lawsuit and say, "Mm, I don't think that's a really strong case. It's untenable to think that once parents have had a taste of educational freedom, that they're going to give it up pretty easily. And I think it's yet again, another instance of the establishment underestimating parents. Before I close here, I'd also like to say a shout out to Commissioner Edelblut, who is the one being sued here. We have had him on this show and he is one of the few commissioners of education, I think you were one of these guys, Gerard, in the states where you served. But he's one of the few state chiefs who really boldly comes out full-throatedly in favor of educational choice and educational freedom. Many state chiefs, if they don't come out as opposed, sort of remain silent on the issue because it's controversial. Increasingly, I think we're seeing state chiefs take office who are built like our friend Frank. And I think that that's really encouraging because this need not be a public-private divide. This is about parents, this is about kids, and this is about finding the right education for every child. So like I said, Gerard, I, I came at it with a bit of skepticism and facetiousness, but at the end of the day, this is an important case. I think it's one we'll talk about again, and maybe we'll be able to have our friend Kate on to tell us why, I'm hoping, this case didn't succeed. What do you think?
0: Well, Kara, as you know, I think we're one of the few podcasts around that actually invites real people, attorneys and families who have been involved in some of the most important private school choice cases in the last decade to this show. So, let's just say up front right now, for the families involved in New Hampshire, and for the attorneys who are going to represent you, whether there's someone local or if it's going to be someone at the Institute of Justice, we look forward to having a conversation with you. I won't spend a ton of time on this. You get all the right points. It's just worth noting one thing for our listeners. The Education and Freedom Account Program was enacted in 2021. As you said, it's only a couple of years, but let's also remember that in New Hampshire, they also have a town tuitioning program that was created in 2017 so parents already enjoy choice but guess what they have an education tax credit program that was enacted in 2012 and so in 10 years the state's created three programs parents are taking advantage of them are there challenges absolutely so but when families decide they want to do something it's really hard to turn back i like what you said about parents guess what If they get a program they like, it's gonna be hard to take away. And I believe it was Ronald Reagan who said, one of the hardest things to take away from someone is a federal program once it's put in place. There's a paraphrase on that, but making the point that once something's there, it's codified, it's tough to take away. So good luck to the families in New Hampshire and also good luck to the AFT version in New Hampshire because they believe that this is going in the wrong direction And in the system of freedom they should also have the right to uh, take a stand so good luck to them as my story is a little different it takes a national view of education so many of our readers probably have heard of the carnegie foundation some of them may have heard of the carnegie foundation for the advancement of teaching but i don't know how many families students scholars of course probably do know how our schools operate and what it takes to actually earn a diploma from a high school. So, my article is from Education Week. The author is Sarah D. Sparks. And the title, The Head of the Carnegie Foundation Wants to Ditch the Carnegie Unit, and Here's Why. Timothy Knowles, who became the 10th president of the Carnegie Foundation in 2021, made it pretty clear that we need to get away from the Carnegie unit. Well, what exactly is that? Well, let's start off by going back to 1905 when congress chartered the carnegie foundation it was created of course uh and center was founded by andrew carnegie who was a steel magnet and basically carnegie units from 1905 moving forward has been a way in which we measure how teachers spend their time and what students learn so for example i was in fact interested to see that the carnegie system as right now has a standard measure of requiring 7,200 minutes of instruction that pretty much equates to an hour each day for 24 weeks for a student to earn one credit in a subject. And now states, of course, can provide flexibility as this relates to high school graduations, particularly so during the pandemic. But for the standard diploma that our students earn in our school districts across the country, we're looking at 18 to 24 credit hours. Now, the credit hours are based upon seat time, something that we've talked about on this show. If you sit, you meet your 7,220 minutes of instruction, it takes place each week for 24 weeks, guess what, you're gonna earn credit. Where what Knowles is saying is, when he's talked to neuroscientists, psychologists, and other researchers, we know that young people don't learn in simply one way, seek time-based learning. Guess what? They learn in many ways, in class, outside of class, whether it's out of school time practices or involvement in sports. He also identified that teachers will tell you that there gotta be better ways for us to deliver instruction to young people. And this model and how we use it, we've got to change it. So he's working with a group of leaders. He's also trying to get 10 large school systems to come on board to help pilot the project. And he said this is going to be a project that could take up to a decade to talk about, to implement. But I'm glad to see someone talking about Carnegie units. You talked about the role of state chiefs for over 20 years, state chiefs, in different states, blue and red, have raised the question, what are we doing to really talk about innovation? As Noel says, many people did not want to take on the challenge of trying to change Carnegie units, because they didn't see Carnegie units as standing in the way of innovation. Well, there are a lot of social entrepreneurs in and outside the classroom who said, actually, that's not the case. It's actually, if not impeding innovation, in some ways, it's not opening up the doors wider. So. This will be something to watch and follow for a few years to come. What are your thoughts?
1: I mean, yeah, this is, it's it's a long time coming, right, as you said. And Carnegie units, you know, they had their place. I think at one time they were useful and innovative, but we're in a place now. I mean, this really ties into my story, too, in the sense that it's about, as you said, people learn differently. We can't measure learning with seat time. We need to think about competency-based education and mastery-based education, which also comes with its own challenges, right? Trying to figure out how we know and how you help people learn at their own pace. But I'm eager and happy to see that this is something that's really now in the ether and in the general discourse. And I would say some states have been doing a pretty good job, Gerard, of sort of forging these more innovative paths. I think Utah is a really good example of a state that is thinking through how to take a more personalized, innovative competency-based approach to education. And it's a new era. So thank you for bringing this
0: to our attention. Since you mentioned competency-based learning, let's also let our listeners know that Western Governors University was created in part to provide higher education with a model to show how non seek time alone can work. So we've got some models in place in higher ed.
1: That's right. And I'm just going to say it out loud now so that it's a note to us and our producers that I think we should absolutely have somebody from WGU on the podcast to talk to us about this. It'd be great. It'd be a great conversation. Gerard, you named it. We've got a guest joining us from another continent, so I think we should probably be sensitive to that. We're going to be speaking in a moment with Magat Wade, the founder and CEO at Skin is Skin and an advocate for African dignity and prosperity coming up right after this learning curve listeners we have with us magat wade she is the founder and ceo at skin is skin and an advocate for african dignity and prosperity in her home country of senegal fluent in wolof french and english Ms. Wade is an accomplished communicator speaking at the UN, the Clinton Global Initiative, the Aspen Institute, TED, Conscious Capitalism, and a variety of higher education institutions, including Harvard, Yale, MIT, and the Wharton School of Business. Her TED talk, which you need to watch, is called Why It Is Too Hard to Start a Business in Africa and How to Change It. She's appeared on Forbes. 20 Youngest Power Women in Africa list, and was named a Young Global Leader by the World Economic Forum at Davos, a TED Global Africa Fellow, and a Leading Woman in Wellness Award winner by the Global Wellness Summit. She serves as the Director of the Atlas Network Center for African Prosperity and is on the advisory board of the Whole Planet Foundation of Whole Foods Market. Ms. Wade's forthcoming book, The Heart of the Cheetah, highlights African poverty and the future of human flourishing. Magat Wade, thank you so much for spending time with us today. Thanks for having me, Kara. Yeah, well, we're Definitely. pretty excited. From your bio, it's clear that you've had a lot of success in your life. You are an entrepreneur and a dynamic public speaker. If people watch your TED talk, I'm sure they're going to see this. Our listeners might not know you yet. Could, could you share a little bit about your country, your background, and how you got to where you are? How your background informs the way that you advocate for education and and how you believe that the free market can advance prosperity and dignity in Africa? So it's a big question, but I'm sure
2: if I had to answer it very fully, it would take more than the 20-something minute we have. So let me see if I can uh, answer it in the most compelling way in a short amount of time. So when people ask me to tell my story, I pretty much tell them the story of my story really has to do with an intellectual, the story of an intellectual journey. So I was born in Senegal, west coast of Africa. And as soon as I was done breastfeeding, my parents decided to take a journey that so many African parents before them have taken, and so many more things to this day are still taking. And it was making the decision that, uh, you know, now they're going to emigrate. They're going to leave their country for more prosperous skies. So they became basically economic migrants. So that is when they left me behind with my grandmother. And when they realized that their immigration journey has worked and that now You know, they were going to be stably positioned in Europe. They first went to France, then to Germany. And while they were in Germany, that's when they called for me to be with them. And that's when I left my country for the first time ever. left my village, left my country, left my continent, just to land in Germany in the middle of the winter. So you can only imagine (laughs) the shock. That was fine. Yeah, so it was really bizarre. And not only did I not have this concept of what a cold weather meant, but forget this white stuff coming from the sky. (laughs) real right
1: imagine and
2: yeah. yes and so basically I went to Germany and I remember that when I arrived there in Germany under those circumstances my first question that I remember so vividly even though I was a child still I was you know barely seven, and that question was, "How can they have this?" and we don't? And it really was not about fancy riches or anything like that. For me, it was, for example, about the taking my shower just because back home, in order for me to take my shower, it could be a thirty to forty minute affair because grandma, first of all had to get the coal, her little stove, you know, using coals going. And yeah, so people should not be hearing because I understand when you live in the u s and all you've known, is this relative comfort that countries like the U.S. provide. When you hear the word stove, you're thinking, oh, she just pops into the kitchen. You're thinking she's popping into the kitchen. Absolutely not. She's like outside with a little coal stove like uh, you would take on your camping trip, right? And so there she puts the coals in there, gets to get them hot, then puts a pot of water on top. And when it boils, then she puts it in a bigger bucket and then adds colder water to it to bring it to a good temperature for me to bathe with. And then somebody stronger in the family would drag this to what served as a shower area. And there, at last, I could finally, with a smaller pot, proceed to take my shower. Here, mom is like, my God, it's time for your shower. I'm like, where is the bucket of water? I am not getting butt naked in this winter. <laughs> Where's the bucket of water? And she's like, come on, you silly, just jump in the shower. And then I jump there, turn the knobs on one side this way, one side this other way, and the water comes down at the temperature I wanted. I can control it anytime in any way I want. I'm like, are you kidding me? What is this? How come they have this and we don't? And it was the same thing, you know, paved roads in Germany, where I came from, you hardly had any paved roads, especially back in the days, always coming home with ashy feet, having to wash my feet. So in a way, I think what little girl me was saying was, how come here life feels so easy? And so I'm not wasting my time doing everyday, you know, Sure that here in the blink of an eye, it takes place. H- how come? And it's really a question that became a defining question of my life, which is the reason why I'm talking to you today, because I went on to finding out what happened, why is this the case, why? And eventually the question became, how come some countries are like mine are poor while others are rich? And as I'm growing up, I'm trying to get this answer. And I've heard it all i've heard some people say with a very straight face oh come oh darling it's not your fault it's the iq fear it's the uh, you know it's just because uh, you know, there's just no way that blacks and browns are just they're just not as smart as white people so you know that iq fear, but still very much alive and then you have people telling me it's just because you know if only we had access to to more education and then i tell them well you go and you say that To the 64-something-4 million working youth that are living in extreme or moderate poverty, basically what you have is every single year you have 10-plus million graduates that are coming out of the 668 universities that are on the continent, and half of them cannot get the job, right? So similarly, one of my team members, she is based out of Eswatini, ex swaziland and when I interviewed her, so here is this young lady, and she's got a B.S. in math, mathematics, that's what we're talking about. And I was looking for people, and of course, you know, I was given her resume. And she didn't have a job. She never had a job since she finished university. And I said, what are you doing now? And she said, well, I'm raising chickens. This is what brilliant math minds are doing right now in so many places on the continent. And so you go tell this girl that she needs more degrees and if she, only she gets more degrees, she got a job. Right. And yeah. so anyway, it, it's just like, and so others say, Oh, you know, malnutrition. Others are like, Oh, access to shoes, you know, then some shoes, if I give you shoes, then it will be better. So anyway, all of that made no sense to me Kara because here I am thinking if any of that was true, then why, and how come my parents and like, so like them, so many others, the minute they get to leave, they get to accomplish their greatest potential. We're talking about the same people, in this case, same people, it's my parents. Same background, everything, same name, face, everything. Yet their outcome in life can be radically different. And what has changed in this equation? What's the only variable that changed in this equation? It's the place that they happen to be in. Yeah. And so I'm starting, to think, I'm starting to think, it has to do with the place that these people are in or not. And then I became very curious about that. What's going on? What is it? What's the difference between France and, I mean, in this case, Germany and Senegal? And, of course, an educated mind right away will say, of course. It's because in, in Senegal, they're poor. So, of course, nobody can get anything done there. And in Europe or in America, there it's a these rich nations, So, of course, it's easy to do something there. But that also didn't make sense. And I couldn't explain why, but it didn't. I could see why people jumped to those conclusions, but I was like, hmm, that's kind of bizarre. And eventually, little by little, here is coming the answer. Eventually, after a couple of years in Germany, family decided to move to France if we're going to stay in Europe. After business school in France, I decided France was going to be too small for my ambitions. So I moved to the United States where I became a headhunter in finance in the heydays of the datcom boom, working for companies like Google, like Netflix, before they became household name brands. And just really getting to discover, right there in Silicon Valley, discovering the magic of entrepreneurship, which is literally this magic of creating something out of nothing. And watching these entrepreneurs who, in my mind, are the greatest, entrepreneurship is really the greatest form of criticized by creating. Entrepreneurs are those who criticize by creating. Something in the status quo does not suit them, And they set out to change it by starting and offering and creating the alternative. People don't have to all love it, but at least that's what they do. And so here I am in Silicon Valley doing extremely well for myself. And one day I had an existential crisis, a crisis of existence, driving down Big Sur, one of those moments when I was basically celebrating myself and being so great and exercising gratitude for all who have contributed to me having managed to make it so far. But as usual, when I would feel that way, all of a sudden this weird, very dark mood and feeling would descend upon me, almost like a black veil, like, you know, like just very bad, very dark. And that day though, I was not able to do what I usually would do with it. Usually I had developed a coping mechanism to shrug it under the rug. What was that veil? That veil was simply this very conscious acknowledgement that while I was afforded this life of abundance, that many back home were still living in a world of scarcity. And when I would get into this mood, it just comes coming out of me from everywhere, images. Uh, stories, words that I grew up with almost every month for every other couple of weeks. A story of people, some of them friends of friends, some of them faraway family members that have died because they took these little fishermen's boats, tried to, they used them to try to get to Europe to find a job. So often the boat steps over and with it, babies in it, but mostly young people. And stories like that, that just, you know, of bodies at the bottom of the ocean serving as fish food it's really really haunting and when people try to use air route you somewhere above you know england a body drops from the plane because somebody thought it was a good idea to hide in the landing gear Mm. if they open a cargo section of a plane in paris they see a dead frozen body because no one told them that the cargo section you know would get dead cold up there in the air and then when people try to avoid sea route Air route, they try land route, and oftentimes they get stuck in Libya, where there in Libya, if you get stuck as an immigrant, illegal immigrant like this, then they put you on an open slave market. And you heard me right. In 2022, it's when CNN came up with the story a couple of years ago that they finally believed what people like me were saying because you know. So many of us are part of WhatsApp groups or people who are part of WhatsApp groups where, on a regular basis, we're being asked to contribute to the liberation, to basically buying back the freedom of somebody so they can go back home.
1: Yeah. First of all, I want to thank you because the vividness with which you are not only, you know, compare and contrast the way you grew up in Africa to what you experienced in Germany and these stories that drive your ambition is what I hear you saying, that you couldn't even enjoy your own success because you knew what was happening to folks who could have been you and it could have been any family member, I'm assuming. I'd like to pick up what you said though about the status quo, that there is a status quo. You know, People are making assumptions that, well, okay, it's poverty or okay, it's the person or there's something deficient, right? And you are locating and saying, how could that be possible? These things are untrue. You change the place, you change the person. But let's talk about that for a moment because I'm curious to know, What you've arrived at in terms of understanding, is it the structure of the place? Is it the economic, the political institutions? Because most Americans don't even understand where Senegal is, unfortunately. That's our problem with our education system, right? We think of Africa as one large place, and it must all be the same. (laughs) I think that's a travesty of American education. Can you home in a little bit on the diverse sort of political institutions and structures and economics that drive these tragedies that you're locating Yeah, yeah. No, and that's That's exactly
2: what I was going to get to. And yeah, Africa for 54 countries, 55, depending on how you count, it's a massive, massive continent with people speaking, I mean, thousands of different languages, so many different cultures, very, very diverse place, as you can imagine. But to go back to the story and how I eventually got to understand what was going on and what's going on with these different places, why why Germany this way and Senegal this way. So eventually I was there in Silicon Valley, you know, doing really well for myself. But like I said, I had this emotional breakdown and eventually i just simply could no longer reconcile the life of abundance that i was afforded with a life of scarcity that i left behind and that day though i had to face it up i had to face off with my pain and with the state of the world back then and so that's when i made this deal with god because i'm a person of faith who is just like god from here on I want that for every breath that you afford me, I want to put that breath towards the betterment of my compliment. And so as soon as I made that vow, basically things started to kind of, maybe I was a different person, I don't know, but I started to see things. And so basically what happened is a few months after that, I went home to Senegal with the person who was my husband back then, he passed away since then. Uh, But my husband was from France and I took him back just to discover where I came from. We talked about this juice my whole life, but I told him about the hibiscus drink. So we went there just to realize that people, you know, if you made it, now you drink Coca-Cola, drink Pepsi, whatever. So long story short, I was very upset about that state of affairs, but again, criticized by creating. Then I built a business company, a brand that we built in the U.S. to do reverse colonialism on my people, because for them, anything that came that were indigenous to us must not be something good. We're always always reaching out for Western brands because that's what we think is better. So I said, fine, I'll build my brand in the West, do reverse colonialism on all of you. So by the time I get back here, you're going to drink it because you're going to be like, oh, well, we share that's what the fancy Americans are drinking. Well, that's what it takes for this generation. Let's do it. So anyway, that's how I built my first company. But you see, Kara, right there in building my first company and then later my second company and now my third company, what they all have in common is there is a sister company in the U.S. and a sister company in Senegal. And... I remember when I first did that, where we were, in the U.S., it was so fast for you to set up your LLC, meaning your legal entity for your business. It would take, back then, not even a day. You know, you fill out the paperwork, and then it goes through the process quickly. Everything is done. You don't need to know anybody at your state department. You didn't need to know anybody, you know, the Secretary of State or anything like that to get anything done. There is a process. It's very clear. It's very straightforward. It's very short. You do it you have your legal entity, you choose between uh, your LLC, your corporation, S.C., whatever you decide. And compare something like that that takes me less than a day to back home in Senegal during that time. It literally almost took a couple of years for me to be able to register the business legally. That's insane. Then you look at um, the label loss. In Senegal, you are married to employees for good or for bad. Compare that to free will, employment at will in the US. Right now, just to give you an example, I'm going through the process of hiring two more employees in Senegal. And what do we have to do? So Kara, Magat started her business and she wants to hire you, Kara. But guess the problem is Kara has a PhD in German that's worthless to both of us in this situation. But because of that PhD and her level of so-called education, the government of Senegal, it happens to be that it's a country where everything is centrally planned. So every single job somehow is on a grid and depending on your background and everything else then the state has decided what your salary should be so here it's saying that i need to pay you x amount which in this case makes absolutely no sense because i don't care about the degree it doesn't matter for what we're trying to do and so what happens in a situation like that is that i'm probably going to say well Kara, i'm sorry but i can't hire you because it makes no sense. What the state wants to impose, this, this doesn't make any sense. So you remember those half of 10 million people coming out of the university every year that I told you are still looking for work? Well, the few that could find work with me or others in this situation, government provisions prevent us, the reality of business, to do that. But then let's say fine. This salary that has been imposed upon us by the government makes absolutely no sense. But let's say I'm just going to go ahead and do it because I really, really like you and you really, really like us. We want to get this done. Okay, let me see if I can make an effort. And maybe I can only hire you. I cannot hire the two people I would have hired for your salary, but fine, let's do it. And I'm just doing this for for the sake of the story. Because in reality, I'm not going to hire you, Kara. I just can't. (laughs) The reality of business is ruthless. And if a business doesn't justify, how much I'm forced to pay you, I'm simply not going to hire you and go find somebody that is more affordable for me. So you stay home. But let's stay here for the sake of a story, so we found an agreement, we can do it. Well, guess what? Then at that moment, you and I, we sign an employment agreement, even if it's like a temporary agreement that's going to be maybe I'm hiring you for this next six months, or the next year, or the next two years, it's a temporary employment, because I am really scared to hire you permanently, because then it's really hard for me to get out of it. So here we are, we signed the agreement in three copies. Then we proceed to take it to this government office called Inspection du Travail, the Labor Inspection Office, because guess what? There, it's that labor inspection person from the government who has never set a foot in our company, has probably no idea even what we're making, and even if he heard that we're making lip balms, has no idea what gets into it, what looks for facilities, what does not facility look like, nothing. But this person gets to decide if the employment between you and I can go, can happen. And we get there after three hours or something of driving there because I decided to set up my facility in the rural area so that people in the rural area no longer have to emigrate in the city in search for work, right? So we did this intentionally. But what it means is we're so far away from where the government offices are, which we have to deal with every single month. So we go, and then they say, well, After you wait for this person who has been running his errands all day, he finally shows up and he's like, well, where is Gary's medical certificate? I'm like, what? And the CPA whom we had to hire, because the laws are so complicated that if you don't hire experts, you run the risk of making mistakes. And if you make mistakes, you run the risk of being harassed or worse yet, put in jail. And so you have to hire an expert, which means added cost of doing business. But even him, I call him, like, he said we need a – what is that? And he's like, give it to me. The talks to him, and the gentleman says, the inspection label person says, well, yeah, it is part of a law. And here was my expert. He's never heard of that, and he's the expert. But I'm not blaming him. I'm blaming these very obscure laws. And then he said, well, it's something that – and then we're asking him, since when are these laws? When will the data come? Turns out these date from colonial times. But anyway, it turns out that he also is going to have to determine how physically fit Kara you are to do this job that you and I, as both adults, have decided to enter into. And finally, after many back and forths, and mind you, when we started the process, it's now a month plus later. And we still are not completely finished because on some of them, she's still saying, well, this job that you want to hire this person for, we have a provision for it nowhere. Well, of course, because back in colonial time, there are jobs that exist today that you guys, you guys central planners could simply never have imagined would be real today. And so, and I say, well, what do we do in a situation like this? Well, in a situation like this, it's me, the inspection person, who gets to decide the category and the pay and everything that goes with it. And because they're so pro-employees, so are they thinking he's like i'm going to use this opportunity to make it a high salary so i'm helping this employee making more money and i said well sorry then it means i cannot hire this person so you see how we go back and forth and i could walk you through if i walked you through all the struggles you would be just like why are you why on earth are you doing this this place and so this is where kara i got my answer it turned out that at the end of the day you're poor because you have no money, at least not enough money to take care of your basic needs. You don't have money because you have no source of income. A source of income for most of us is a job. Where do jobs come from, the private sector, these enterprises, especially small and medium-sized enterprises? Then don't you think we should make it easy for these entrepreneurs to actually enterprise, to start and run their businesses? Then what I'm finding is what I have been going through as an empo- as an entrepreneur doing business in Africa is basically something that economists have been measuring forever, and they call it economic freedom. How free is one to enterprise? And it turns out that for all the indicators that matter to measure such thing, it turns out that what I have lived experience on the ground, it show, what it is saying is it is almost harder to do business anywhere in sub-Saharan Africa than it is, say, in any Scandinavian nation. Wow. There you have it. This is why we're poor. A nation is poor if it does not offer a good business environment to its would-be entrepreneurs. And conversely, a nation becomes rich when it allows its entrepreneurs to do their magic by offering them an enabling environment, which means greater economic freedom. That was my answer.
0: Gerard. Yes, well, you've actually covered the three questions that I was gonna ask, because oh, I wanna just go ahead and thank you for what you've had to share with us. My first trip to Africa was to Senegal in the late 1990s with a group of students from New York City and Los Angeles and had a chance to meet some great people there. The one question that I would leave with and you can answer within the few minutes that we have is one takeaway from this conversation that the Sub-Saharan Africans have to leave Africa to be successful.
2: Not everybody has to leave Africa always, but the ones who stay behind and try to make it work, they certainly have to jump through so many more hoops than they would have if they did not have to deal with this very, very messed up and convoluted business environment. So for All of their investment, their investment could get them so much farther ahead than it is right now. So this is not to say that it is impossible to survive and thrive, but we're never going to get the critical mass of entrepreneurs that are needed to actually lift a nation out of poverty and leap into prosperity. It's just not going to happen.
1: Wow. that I mean, that's quite a statement, I think, for our listeners to consider. And certainly, based on your own experience and your good work, I'm going to encourage everybody to look you up and view your TED Talk is, I'm sure, informing your advocacy greatly around these issues. Magot thank you so much for your time today. And we really thank appreciate you, having your voice with us on The Learning Curve. I appreciate you as well. Thank you so much. Thank you.
0: And my tweet of the week comes from Ed Next, and it's about an article published by two of my AEI colleagues, Nat Malkus and Cody Christensen, who is now, in fact, a doctoral student at Vanderbilt. When I was in the office at AEI, he was actually a fellow. And they did a really good study published by AEI focused on enrollment. Their tweet is, the effects of school districts reopening policies on enrollment differed by grade level, according to a recent report. If you're interested in knowing what's going to likely happen in terms of outcomes funding, take a look at which schools opened sooner than others. Take a look at what schools were remote longer than those in person. Really good article won't spoil it, but they do a really good deep dive into public databases and others. So to those two, thanks for your work.
1: Yeah, looking forward to it. I haven't read it Jordan. and I'm going to, because it sounds like a great one. Next week, we have another international guest. We are going to be speaking with Professor Michael Slater. He's the Emeritus Professor of Victorian Literature at Birkbeck College, University of London, and the world's foremost expert on Charles Dickens and his works, very appropriate for this time of year. I was just talking about Charles Dickens with my children. Yes, I was the other day. We were talking about a Christmas carol. Gerard, root for the blue and white for me, will you? Can you do that? I will. (laughs) All right. Sounds like a plan. We will be back together very soon, my friend, and I'm looking forward to it. You have a good one.
0: All right. Take care.
1: Bye-bye.